0: Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Our 2019 opening night event, Speaking Out, was recorded at the University of Newcastle's Harold Lobb Concert Hall. Artist Ben Quilty, former Human Rights Commissioner Gillian Triggs and Aboriginal activist Joe Williams spoke about the people and experiences that have inspired them to take a stand. Your host is Jane Hutchin.
1: It's now time for the main event, Speaking Out. The host of your panel tonight is Jane Hutchin and it's wonderful to have her back at the festival again this year. Journalism, interviewing, storytelling is in her blood. She was born in Hong Kong where her father was a newspaper editor and her mother was a journalist. She's been a foreign correspondent in China, the Middle East and Europe. She's the author of two non-fiction books, China Baby Love and a correspondence memoir, From Rice to Riches. These days, you will see her on ABC TV with her show, One Plus One, where she interviews celebrities and people from all walks of life. If she's not on TV, she's a part-time tour leader. Yeah, you can travel with Jane Hutchin. She uses her wide travel experience to give lectures on history, literature, and culture from Turkey to Oman. Please welcome Jane Hutchin. Thank you. you. Joining Jane on the panel tonight is Joe Williams, a proud Wiradjuri First Nations Aboriginal man. He played in the National Rugby League for a couple of teams that weren't the Newcastle Knights, so we won't go there. Then he switched to professional boxing in 2009, But sports loss is the wider community's gain, especially the Indigenous community. Joe's experience with mental illness and addiction inspired him to become a mental health advocate. In 2017, he was named a finalist in the National Indigenous Human Rights Awards for his work in suicide prevention and mental health and for fighting for equality for Australia's First Nations people. His debut book, The Enemy Within was published last year and he made a short visit to Newcastle last year for the festival's final session on the Sunday. So, it's great to have him back. No one here has seen as much of Australia as Joe. He's always on the road and we are so pleased that road led to Newcastle this weekend. Please welcome Joe Williams. Joining Joe and Jane is Gillian. Dr Gillian Triggs served as president of the Australian Human Rights Commission from 2012 to 2017. She has held many significant academic positions, including Director of the British Institute for International and Comparative Law and Dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Sydney. She's a former barrister and a governor of the College of Law. She's currently a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne and chair of Justice Connect, where she continues to pursue her commitment to ensuring all people have a fair chance to access justice, including people experiencing homelessness, elder abuse, family violence, and financial exploitation. She's the author of her own book, Speaking Up. And I'm told she was awarded the University of Melbourne's Miss University 19, I won't name the year there either. It is very special to have Dr Triggs with us tonight. Please give her a very special welcome. Dr. Gillian Triggs.
2: Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank okay. you for not mentioning today.
1: <laughs> Joining Jane, Joe, and Gillian on the panel is—we're going to call him Jen Quilty, if that's all right with you. Ben Quilty is one of the country's most acclaimed contemporary artists. He's well known for his incredible oil paintings, but you may also know him because of his campaign to save the lives of Bali Nine pair Andrew Chan and Mayurin Sukumaran. He says his artwork is about making out how to live in this world. It's about compassion and empathy, but also anger and resistance. He says he hopes to push compassion to the front of the national debate. In doing that, he's won several painting prizes, such as the 2014 Prudential Eye Award, the 2011 Archibald Prize, and the 2009 Doug Moran National Portrait Prize. He's the editor of Home, Drawings by Syrian Children. It's very special to have him here tonight because the first major survey exhibition of his work has just opened at Adelaide's Art Gallery of South Australia and is on display until early June. Do try and get there if you can. It's a massive honour to have Ben Quilty here tonight. We're very grateful for his time. He has to race back to Sydney tomorrow to do a little bit of judging for this thing called the Archibald. Please put your hands together for Ben Quilty.
3: Thank you, thank you.
1: Please put your hands together for our fabulous panel. Give them a warm Newcastle welcome.
0: Good evening, Newcastle. We are very happy to be here tonight in your beautiful city. As you can see, Ben really dressed up to be here. Thank you so much for that. Newcastle is wonderful. I came here on the light rail. We have um, a light rail being built in Sydney, some of you may know. Um, I think they said it would be finished around 2050 or something like that. (laughs) I went past the terminus the other day and I noticed they had actual little light rail trains there but because they're not being used, they were covered. It was kind of like going into Miss Havisham's house, you know, with all these cobwebs around. But anyway, we're gonna move aside the cobwebs today to have a bit of a chat with these three incredible people whom I so admire, because whenever I stick my head up to say anything, I usually get shot down and I run away and hide. And I wonder how you all do it in your own mediums, media, and you're standing tall, brave, and still in front of me. So congratulations to you all. So, I'm going to ask each of you a little bit about yourself, particularly certain light bulb moments you have. And I'm going to start with Ben, as he's sitting straight opposite me, and he's obviously the best dressed person here. <laughs>
2: That's twice. <laughs> yeah,
4: I,
3: I do have a, a, a reason for that. I came on the very fast train, which was finished in 1998. <laughs> <laughs> And um, actually I wasn't, I, was, I had to pick my little boy up who's here somewhere from school in Mittagong and get here in time and I thought I'll do it easily. But um, I, I, I built my little Joe's swear jar very thickly. Um, most of the, the words that went into the swear jar were, were aimed at Infrastructure New South Wales around, around Pennant Hills Road and, and I, I do have a shirt in my car, which I'll wear for you all later.
4: <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, we've heard that one before. <laughs> so, recently you've been invited by UNICEF to see some of the refugee children, and, and really I was looking at the book today, and it's it's so heartfelt. It's like kids are no different wherever they are in the world. You know, you you could imagine those... Drawings being done by kids that you know, and yet they're, you know, kids with tears pouring down their face, bullets raining down, homes destroyed, and we wonder, you know, we complain about things like the light rail. We've got nothing to complain about, really. When was the first time that you stood up to something, Ben? Do you remember what incident that was?
3: Oh, that's a big question. I was was the I was the head boy in my big public primary school in year six. And my parents made it very clear to me that at the end of year six, they are much prouder of the citizenship award that I won. And they have three sons and I, I think you teach compassion. You have to teach it to children. They need to learn how to feel for other people, particularly people who are different to them, because that fear starts in little people and it's understandable in little person but it's very easy to un to, to unteach, I think. Um, and in year seven, I went to a Catholic boys' school and I was strapped throughout year seven, violently strapped. And it was only when my little boy turned 12 that I realized I had anxi- anxiety bubbled within me and I had, had to get my head around why. And I realized that it was fear f- on behalf- for my son. Um, so I didn't stand up to that man who hit me because I had no power in that relationship. But about 12 years ago, the school rang me and asked me if I would donate money to give to a memorial in that man's name.
0: No way.
3: So my God, I stood up to that school then.
0: Unbelievable. Did you tell anyone at the time?
3: I told mum and dad when I turned 35. Wow. Um, and. And, um, yeah, it's indescribable. It, it made me who I am. I don't regret any of it, but I, to find forgiveness for him, I think, was an important um, um, passage for me. And, but then having children really cemented for me what that meant to me and who that made me. And then it made me more easily understand the path that I then followed through my teenage years and into my young Adulthood, which was reckless and self-destructive.
0: When did you stop being reckless and self-destructive?
3: Well, my son would say that that swear jar proves I'm still fairly reckless. <laughs> <clears throat> um, I met my wife when I was 26, and she's a very, very level-headed woman who's been through a lot herself, and she's a rock. I, and I really, it was at that point that I thought I need to get a hold on this, and I need to understand myself, and I think... It's impossible to have compassion for anybody unless you understand yourself. Um, and I, I, it was one of my life missions to, to stop being reckless. I have a lot now to say. It's funny, it feels the older I get, the more I have to say, the more is unsaid. Sadly, the more injustice seems to confront me that I see in front of me all the time um, that needs to be addressed. And so now I go to the gym and drink a lot of water and. The swearing won't kill me early, but, not, you know, I look after myself. And I think for a creative person, I, I remember someone asking um, Albert Tucker or one of those early artists, what will you do when you retire? And he said, I'll take up painting. I will paint for the rest of my life, and I have a lot of things to say, and I want to be healthy to tell those stories and to live to be an old man for my children. I think that's a nice goal to have.
0: Absolutely. Before we move on to Gillian, I've got this quote that you gave, probably some newspaper or something like that. I want to unpick taboos, which means upsetting people and to be fearless about it. So is that your motto in a sense?
3: Yeah, it is. And, and I think in this country, it's a, it's a fraught position, but, um, but I wouldn't give it up for anything. I, I went through high school I was actually kicked out of, asked to defer second year of art school because I, I was off the rails and they let, allowed me to defer and I got in a car with a friend who just lost his his mother and was going through a bit of a crisis and we drove up the east coast of Australia and Damien bought a book on Pitanjara language and I thought I'm going to learn Pitanjara and be able to speak to Aboriginal people all the way up the east coast and I'm ashamed to say that That was my understanding, but that was my education in public education system and a Catholic boys' school, zero education about people who've been here for 60,000 years. So when I came back, I enrolled straight in in a course at Monash University on Aboriginal culture and history, and that was the first I knew about the history. And that's a driving force, not only for me to stay here and put up with the haters, but something that I believe needs to be addressed for our collective good, we will become a much better country when we can acknowledge our our white people, really dark history.
0: Maybe we all need to... (laughs) I was going to say, maybe we all need to go and do a course. I think it would be very worthwhile. Gillian. You came to Australia at the age of 12. I, I love this line that I read that your light bulb moment, this is very Gillian by the way, was in a third year lecture on international law. Is that right? <laughs> well, yes, it was
2: really. Um, uh, although, I, I, if I can go back one step a little bit earlier, um, I My mother used to keep one of those baby books and, you know, all the various things that you did, and uh, she claims that my first sentence was, it's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not really sure if that's true, but uh, (laughs) that was a little hard. (laughs) But, um, no, I I was very young doing law in those days. He went straight into law school and um, I couldn't see a future for me in, uh, you know, contracts and constitutional and property and torts and crime. I couldn't see where I was going to fit in. And then I walked into this lecture by a marvelous man, a Polish Jew who had come to Australia in the 30s, and he talked about the Charter of the United Nations and the, the view that if you breach human rights, you will inevitably lead to conflict and that we need to manage the two. We need to protect human rights to ensure peace in the world through the rule of law. And I was sitting in the front row, I think with my twin set of pearls on, uh, saying virtually nothing. And for me, I thought the law now makes sense. In other words, you can use the law to achieve social justice and to prevent the human rights breaches that, of course, I was so aware of from um, my relatively close birth to the, to the Second World War and my parents' involvement in the war. And so really from then on, I was absolutely certain that that's what I wanted to do uh, and uh, was really very, very lucky to be able to do
0: it. So it's interesting that in upholding human rights law, which was your passion really from the time of university, of course you had no conflict in your career in pushing that forward, did you? Particularly, say, around 2014, 15, 16? <laughs> well, I think that I mean that was
2: really the extraordinary thing that for 45 years I would I was just a, you know, an ordinary lawyer working in the international commercial law field and a little bit of human rights law from my 53rd floor office with a major law firm that I worked with. Um, but it was when I took on the job as president of the Human Rights Commission uh, that I too really like like you, Ben. You you are I was on Christmas Island talking to women holding their babies who couldn't be Australian citizens. I was going to indigenous communities um, uh, th- three hours up a, uh, up a up a you know dusty road outside Catherine to see aged care facilities or, or or communities that were still surviving, and then when you're actually talking to people who are so badly affected by our failure to protect human rights and to respect human rights, that that really, it really radicalised me, uh, to be honest. I know it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult word to use, but I think I went from being a pretty straight-laced, black-letter, conservative lawyer, giving advice to my clients, to somebody who now said, in modern day, in Australia, we have failed to respect those rights, We're, most particularly with our First Nations peoples. Um, but, of course, for asylum seekers and refugees. And we've ignored the plight of those uh, suffering in domestic violence, um, suicide rates, um, and, and the poverty. Those, uh, it's, uh, of course, for my age group, it's extraordinary to realize that despite those times of great optimism and hope in the 60s for women, the fastest growing group in Australia for homelessness is women over 55. And when you start to bring these facts together, um, children, uh, Indigenous children are 11 times more likely to be in out-of-home care, and so I mean, one could go on. But the point is that I came face to face with that for the first time and realized that I couldn't sit in my office any longer and, and just write about it or talk about it.
0: Some might actually say you were radicalized in a way, radicalized at least for your, your practice of human rights law. I wonder, as time went on, You know, many of us here remember watching you facing the Senate Estimates Committee and just thinking, how does she do it? And I was so delighted to read in your book that you actually did have a kind of coping mechanism when you were under fire from all those questions. Tell us about what Liz Broderick told you. Well,
2: this is, of course, relevant to the artistic world because um, I was in eight hours of questioning with Senate estimates, challenging what I knew to be good law. So I was on very strong legal grounds, but, but the questions were coming thick and fast, and we had a break for about 10 minutes, and my colleague Liz Broderick, the uh, sex discrimination commissioner, said, Jillian, in the central committee room of, the, um, of Parliament House in Canberra, there is a wonderful picture by Mandy Martin a rather despairing picture of environmental degradation. It's a grim picture. But she said, in the corner, there's a little bit of white cloud. And she said, when things get bad, go and have a look at the white cloud. And I thought, Liz, that is the most pathetic piece of advice I've ever received. (laughs) Here I am trying to deal with the the, the precise terms of a statute or the role of an international treaty on Australian human rights law, and you tell me to look at a cloud in a picture. Uh,
3: Yeah, it makes sense to me.
2: Well, (laughs) absolutely. Well, I walked back into the Senate Estimates Room feeling quite grumpy with Liz Liz Broderick, I must admit. And um, things got heated again, and people were using me as a conduit to have a go at each other. and I found my eyes lifting to the white cloud. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, that's how I'm gonna get through the day, and I did.
0: It's a beautiful story. I don't know if you remember when I interviewed you on One Plus One. I've I've just had a huge breakthrough. I want everybody to know this. I normally have a thesis on my lap, pretty much, and I sort of look for little bits and pieces that I want at the time in my ginormous clipboard. And look at this, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) I've been watching Marie Kondo. (laughs) It's it's so easy to see exactly where I am. <laughs> Joe Williams, you were a rugby player for 4 years. I wonder you were plucked as a young child as you know taken around and said this guy's got talent. Did you have voices in your head even as a kid as a teenager?
5: I did. And you know, I had uh, I saw my first NRL contract at the age of 13, so I was a kid that had enormous potential. Um, you know, I was lucky that I had some good guidance at home, um, and you know, as a kid who's 13, 14, 15 year old, I'm I'm, I'm playing in the in the local first grade competition against men. Um, so I was a kid that that had a great deal of of potential. Now the more study and, and this is the, the work that I do is around mental health and, and, and around brain trauma. And, and a lot of the study now is pointing to uh, impact of the brain um, causes issues with our mental health. Um, and it was on the back of my very first severe head knock uh, at the age of 13 that I don't know if, if anyone's had a concussion, but when you have a concussion, you, you, it, it talks to you. there's a massive amount of confusion, you don't know what day it is, you don't know what time it is, you don't know what happened, you don't know who you are. That confusion was happening but what I say are voices is the thought process that everyone goes through. Everyone has this conversation inside their head. For me, my conversation started to tell me at the age of 13 that I wasn't good enough, that I'd never amount to anything, that I should end my life. I've had that conversation every single day since the age of 13 ringing loud and clear in my ears telling me to not be here anymore. I'm proud that I can sit here and tell my story now on the back of a 15 year professional sports career what I did's worked. You know the tips and tools that I've used and utilized throughout my life has put me in you know, some, some places of danger, I won't lie, you know, there was, the, the only way that I could silence what was happening inside my head, because I, I didn't know what it was, I, I thought that everyone went through it, you know, you, you've got, you've got extreme doubt and extreme paranoia, uh, like somebody, like, like the world's against you, um, I could, I could have the man of the match game on, on Channel 9 in the, in the NRL. And be convinced that I'm going to get dropped from the team the next week because of the negativity that happens inside my head. I silenced that with alcohol and drugs for a hell of a long time.
0: So, when were you actually diagnosed with bipolar disorder? It was many years after. Many, that, many years it?
5: after. And, and, and what it was, and, and I just alluded to, it, I silenced it for so long with alcohol and drugs. Yeah. Um, and I knew that that wasn't the right thing for me, I was doing it as a kid. Um, I knew that that wasn't the right thing for me. I hated the person to turn me into, I hated the, the effect it gave me, but it was the only thing that would silence what was happening in my head. Many, many years after playing in the NRL, my life being up and down and really, really destructive behaviors, I looked at it and I said, look, I've wanted to be an NRL player my whole life, but more importantly, I wanted to be a good dad and a good role model to kids, and I wasn't being any of that. If I was going out for milk on a Friday afternoon and not coming home till Tuesday, I had a problem. For me, I realised that everything negative that was happening and all the destructive behaviours was centred around alcohol and drugs. 13 years ago, I put the bottle down and put my life onto a better path. The thing was, I was using substance to quieten down what was happening in my head. I take the substance away, the noise gets turned back up again. So that's when I, had to, I went, well maybe this, I, I do have an issue, and you, know, you know, probably um, apart from my two beautiful older children with my ex-wife, the best piece of advice she ever gave me was, I want you to have a look at this list of what they call bipolar disorder. Um, for my initial diagnosis, I've got her to thank for it. Um, she, she encouraged me to get some help because she could see me behind the closed doors declining at a massive rate um, and for me you know on the back of a, a diagnosis of a bipolar disorder um, giving away the booze giving away drugs I lost interest in playing rugby league left rugby league and then became a boxer um, and boxing taught me not how to fight people physically it taught me how to fight myself mentally and it taught me how to fight back against what I was going through
0: before we begin more of a group discussion, um, and i don't want to go into this too deeply because this is a you know this is a, a general audience but Joe tried to take his own life in two thousand twelve by consuming lots and lots and lots of pills. he didn't expect to wake up, but thankfully he did when you woke up, did you immediately sense that this gift you'd had of being alive again was a gift or did it take you a while to get to that place? I didn't
5: know whether to be thankful I was alive or disappointed that I was alive I tried everything within the power of my two hands to not be here anymore and and it wasn't that that I wanted to die it was that I didn't see an end in sight you know, I, 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 and, and, and I do loads of work around the country and internationally as well in this space. Um, the common theme with people who, who get through these dark times and, and uh, thankfully enough to, su- to, to survive suicide attempts, the common theme is that you don't want to die, you just want the pain to end. And, you know, when I, when I come to the next day, I went, well, this is too big for me, I can't do it by myself anymore. I was, I was battered, I was beaten, I needed to get some help and I was taken, I was, I was admitted into the mental health ward and, um, you know, a, and, and petrified. You know, I didn't want to tell anyone because this macho... It's embarrassing, uh, Well, isn't it? I thought that I was mad. Little did I know that I literally was. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, clinically, but... Um, <laughs>
0: I was, I was gonna say, we've been very quiet about something that obviously isn't quite right here. I mean, I think my shoes are quite nice. I think Gillian's are incredible. Ben, sorry, we're not gonna go there. But, but look at these. They're wonderful. Um. Now, I, know I was hoping it's, to it's slide wet. in so no one noticed. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we didn't notice, mate.
5: A counterpart, a counterpart of mine um, called Mike King, and for the New Zealanders in the room, they'd know who Mike King is. Mike King was a stand-up comedian but does a great deal of work with youth suicide now in New Zealand. And he's, the conversation that he started in New Zealand was that people with depression and going through these tough times, it's like slogging the way through mud on a wet day you just got to put your gumboots on and get through it. Um, now, he's got Gumboot Friday um, over in New Zealand. And for me, like these are pretty bright. These are pretty, right? <laughs> Not that you might notice, but um, <laughs> that's the, the persona of me. That's who, who I was. I looked fantastic on the outside. Some people might disagree with that. but <laughs> <laughs> I, I, My joker face was brilliant. But behind the closed doors I, I hated the person that looked back at me in the mirror and what these are they're a replication of my life because yeah they're pretty and they're, a, they're the persona that I used to be I was the, the what looks good on the outside bright and bubbly but they're gumboots they're gumboots that you've got to put on and you've got to grit your teeth and you got to get through that mud every single day And that's, you know, thankfully what boxing taught me how to do that, you know. Boxing didn't teach me how to beat people up. I was lucky enough to win a few belts. Boxing taught me how to fight against what I was going through in my head. It taught me how to grit down on my mouthpiece. Me as a rugby league player hated the side of my own shadow some days. I I I wasn't a tough bloke at all. So getting punched in the mouth wasn't overly entertaining. Boxing taught me how to fight back in the tough times in my life. And there has been countless times where I don't want to be here.
0: Well, I was going to say that you could make a newsreader because that's how newsreaders dress. You know, you can wear anything sort of from there down and you have to look like Ben. You're still not going to get there, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But let's turn the conversation around a little bit. And I'm interested, you know, all of these people have stood up for campaigns. The Myron Sukumaran, the, the death of the Bali Nine guys, children in detention, mental health, incredibly difficult issues. The one thing I've never heard any of you talk about that I'm really interested to know is, what about the anger? We never see, we, we sort of tend to see people giving very measured comments. I wonder, what did you do with the anger that went behind your different campaigns, your different fights? Gillian? Well, look, that, that's a terrific question,
2: Jane, because um, I've not really wanted to say publicly that the anger is like, like a, a jet fuel. It, it actually pushes you down and makes you more determined. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I found that I was so angry that the law that I knew to be accurate and the facts, particularly about the mental health of these children, but the conditions in which they were being held and continuing to be held, um, made me so angry because I had spent all my professional life believing that if you got the law right and the evidence right, you should get an an appropriate answer, but that wasn 't happening and then, and there, there was a pushback against what I knew to, knew to be true, and I found that I didn't sort of go away in a corner and get depressed about it. I just got very angry about it. And I didn't really want to mention this to anybody, but I was talking to a psychiatrist friend of mine who said, anger properly channeled can really be a marvelous uh, force for good. Um, And I hope in my case that it was. Um, But the anger also gets it out of you. You know, it's not about you, it's actually about the issue. And so if you can just get the anger out, and I used to come home from from work and burst in through the kitchen door and and sort of explode with my husband, who would fill me up with gin and tonics, and we'd get through the the evening. But I do think anger can be a very powerful tool, and I think it should be on other issues, like... um, uh, respect for our indigenous peoples and consulting them for, for uh, the regressive position of women and, uh, and numerous other issues, but uh, I think properly channeled it can be very effective.
0: Ben, what about you? When have you last felt really angry about something?
3: Uh, look, I, I was pretty angry about your comments about my outfit. <laughs>
4: <laughs> 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 you asked. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm joking. I, look, I I'd do my best to try and manage my anger because it does eat me up. I think I have, a, I have a propensity for anxiety and anger really fuels that and it's not healthy for me. But, for example, my aunt and Andrews, in the lead-up to their execution, most of the hatred... and I was, I was accused of being a white saviour. How could I stand up for a Sri Lankan Vietnamese? I was accused of standing up for drug dealers. I was accused of everything. We had very serious death threats. We had police involved at home, threats to my family. And the threats all came from my straight white men. And that's why I speak up about it. I'm accused of being a straight white man. And I'm sorry, that's true. I can't do anything about that. And I often say, you need to talk to my mum, you know, (laughs) really. And I tell you what, she's a tough lady. She's not tall, but she's tough. And she had three straight white boys and we are all good young men. Um, In the lead up to that execution, one of the the moments that I really lost my temper was a a white commentator, a straight white man, saying that it was sacrilegious that I would hold a vigil for my friends in Martin Place. Andrew Bolt, you're not here tonight, are you? we have we have shared enemies I so. but i feel i feel i feel I feel, <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel as a straight white man that it is my responsibility to stand up to those people
0: i'm still getting over the bit about shared enemies that's that's kind of scary what about you Joe? Um, anger, is that something? I mean, I guess the silly thing is I always imagine boxes are getting out, you know, mm. energy, but I, I do realise there's more to it than that. But when did you last get really angry and how do you channel your anger?
5: For me, I've had I've had some really, really great guidance and I told you this story this afternoon, I've had some great guidance from my, my parents and, and I've been really, really fortunate with that and, and The one thing that stirs me up, and and, and I get that, and doing a lot of work in communities, and, and you'd understand this as well, is that any negative behavior is a response to trauma. It is a response to something else that's going on. So for me, the very first time I got angry and wanted to boil was due to racism. Now, I tell this story because a lot of people see me comment, publicly about things, and they see me, I'm a very, very calm and measured person. I'm, but I, I guarantee you, I'm the duck on the pond. You know, upstairs, everything's like the little duck with the legs underneath the water, but everything, you know, I look smooth on the surface, but up here, it ain't smooth, I'll give you the tip. But after I had a punch up, um, I come home uh, suspended, suspended at school. Uh, and my dad said to me, he goes, um, what happened today at school? And I said, oh, I got suspended. He goes, what boy?" Said, I said, I had a fight. And he goes, okay, first things first, again, you've got to understand, I don't condone violence, but my dad was an ex-boxer and he's an old school sort of man. Um, my dad said, first things first, did you win?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
5: I went, I did all right. Um, <laughs> and he goes, okay, that's good. Then now the more important issue, why, why did you have a fight? And I said, this guy called me a black. This is when the sensors come and beep. Um, and he said, ah, I want to ask you a question. He said, what color are you? And I said, I'm black. And he said, so you belted a kid for telling the truth. (laughs) I'd never heard that before. I thought my dad would have had my back 100%. He said, but let me tell you one thing. Don't ever get angry at somebody calling you black because it's exactly what you are. And our people have been walking this earth now, I'll correct you 120,000 years. (laughs) We know it's a lot longer. We know it's a lot longer. White science will catch up eventually. (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> but my dad said to me, he said, you'll never, ever beat racism with anger or with your fist. You'll only ever beat racism with intelligence. And from that day forward, I get, again, I get all sorts of abuse and, um, you know, around different things that I've done. In my past, in 2016, I caused an, a, a massive... Uh, Upheaval in the Wagga council because I stayed seated for the national anthem. Um, the local councillor demanded I hand back my award. I said, "There's enough trophies at my house. Take it." Um, <laughs> but the end of the day, I said I'll stay seated for that song because that song was written a time written during a time where it was legal to take our children away and and do all sorts of nasty things to men and women and and you know. We are still seeing, we are the most incarcerated people in the world, we have the, li- the largest, highest suicide rates in the world for First Nation people of this country, the oldest continual race of your country, yet we're not dying from mental illness, we're dying from oppression and racism. You know, how, how do I get through that? I can't get angry about that. I've got to educate people about that. Mm
0: about when, you know, I'll be careful about what I say because I do work for the ABC, I suppose, but <laughs> what about when certain politicians make suggestions like DNA testing and that sort of thing? You know, I mean, that's a sort of... ..a huge disparity in power, right? That's someone well, with a very big megaphone.
5: Again, you... Uh, I'll take back to the advice that my dad gave me. Um, you can only beat people with intelligence and that politician hasn't shown a great deal of it but that's a different (laughs) that's a different conversation um I've and I can say it because I've openly said it on Twitter and my everything's open on Twitter I've asked that politician to sit down with me and he's neglected of um many 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 uh invitations to sit down with me and have a conversation where there's no social media and no cameras and no one else can see it. Um, and I'll educate him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Give you a big handshake. I and didn't, you
5: yeah, <laughs> I'm not speaking those words, but. Um, look, th- the end of the day, um, I call it genetic conditioning. And we've got certain people that are stuck that have been conditioned by 200 years of negativity. You know, and. And if we look at genetics, w- we teach our kids to be whatever we teach our kids, right? We role model our behaviors to our kids now. Unfortunately, we've got people in our communities that have been role modeled poor behavior for 200 years. Um, you know what? Um, with respect, those people are getting older now and our younger kids are starting to learn the truth about this country. And, th- and the best thing is about that is that I get conversation coming up to me and saying, I'm sorry that my people did that. I said, but, but you, you don't need to be sorry. You need to stand with me when other people are doing it to me. right? So it, it, it isn't a fact of, we don't blame white Australia for being white or for, for, for stuff that your ancestors did 230 years ago. But we can blame you for not standing with us with injustice when our people are being racially profiled when our people are being locked up for unpaid parking fines. Absolutely. That's the country we live in.
0: There's a lack of civility in the, the, well it seems to not just be in this country, but there's a conversation going on whether it's on social media or out in the open that that There's a lot of falsities, obviously. There is a a definite lack of civility. There's a blaming culture going on. I wonder, in your own work and trying to stick with your own beliefs, do you know why this has happened and and where it might lead to?
5: I I think what, uh, what Ben said is beautiful. We need more compassion, less judgment. That's, that's a life, we, 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 the opposite of compassion and showing people compassion is judgment. That, that, that's a, wor- a world where we live in, but I think it's turning. I think it is honestly turning. We need, we need more compassion and love. You know, i I'll put a post on social media. When somebody's being angry at you, show them love. Clearly they need it. Hmm.
0: Julian, you're not on social media, are you? No, I... Is, is <laughs> the reason because you... Want to yes, it's far it.
2: too dangerous to go onto social media because <laughs> the, the, I get a barrage for, for anything. Even if somebody puts my name into something in social media, I still get the barrage <laughs> back. So, um, But I think um, I, I, something that I think is very important is the, is the extremely poor political leadership we've had. Because I think... Now, I, I hasten to say before an abc person that I'm not a political no. person <laughs> but I but I am I'm I'm I've come to see that when our, when so many of our political leaders um are aggressive rude attack someone personally rather than the evidence or the report or the argument that they're making that licenses everybody else in the community along with the shock jocks and the and others on social media and it seeps through society if we had uh, our political leaders standing up against it then i think we would have a better chance of bringing that civility back that we saw in the in the you know i remember those years of the 60s with Mr. Whitlam and Mr. Fraser, they were traumatic years of great constitutional uh, conflict, but but there was an attempt to keep the debate at some kind of principled level. What did the Constitution say? What what could we do? And I think that's that's deteriorated to a shocking level now where it's really personal combat uh, added to by our our mutual friend and colleague, Mr. Bolt, But we find everywhere. Uh, and I think that we need to stop it. And interestingly, um, you might recall that one of the the battles that I uh, fought along with, of course, the terrific commission staff, was trying to protect 18C, which... uh, That's the Racial Discrimination uh, The Racial Discrimination Provision. You cannot offend, insult, intimidate or humiliate somebody in the public arena because of their race. It's a very simple
3: idea. And especially because of their clothes. <laughs> sorry, sorry.
2: I will recommend to the Attorney sorry. General that we add this, that we add this to the next, the next list of attributes. Now we've got to get religion in there as well. But what was interesting was that you've got right to freedom of speech, but you can breach that right, and that's where that line was drawn. And and it was threatened. Uh, two prime ministers and one um, attorney tried to either repeal it or diminish it, and it failed because the multicultural community of Australia and the indigenous community said, we need that line. We want freedom of speech, but you can abuse it. Isn't it interesting that after Christchurch and the the horror of that slaughter, um, we now have some of our senior politicians saying, we want to strengthen that provision and include racial vilification and racial hatred, which I think we probably do need as a matter of law. But... But I think my key point is that the, the civility or the lack of it in our public discourse is, to a significant degree, licensed by the very poor quality of senior politicians who have allowed that language to creep in and have a, and to have allowed political debate to have become so personal. And then we can go back to your you. clothes in a minute. <laughs>
0: So, I'm guessing you're not going to come on my show now, so I might as well just let loose. (laughs) Ben, you've had a lot of uh, very personal criticism, both about whether it's about your art, whether it's good art or not, as well as your campaigns. Again, some of it not particularly civil, How do you resolve that and and what do you do? Do you try and educate people? Do you think your art tells the complete story?
3: Oh, that's a very difficult question. I, I at one point, thought I should pull off social media. Around the time of Myron and Andrew's deaths, I thought I should pull off. And it's worth adding, I totally agree with you that our political class behaves so appallingly, I remember, Tony, Prime Minister Tony Abbott saying that he was going to shirt front Vladimir Putin. You're physically threatening personal violence to the head of another state. What am I going to tell my children from now on? When that happens in the schoolyard, it's all right for the Prime Minister. What sort of, what, how are you setting any role model for any of us at that point? But in the lead up to my and Andrew's execution, I ended up, demanding help from the police and saying, I need you to look at this, they're very threatening, they're very violent, they're mostly my men and I want to know what to do about it. And so I ended up getting into a department in the police force that dealt with social media. But they are tiny and they are unresourced and they have no idea what they are doing. Mm -hmm. And they said to me, if you get off, the bad people win. And most of them are bullies and they're just sitting behind their keyboard. And for me, the way I deal with it is to consider who that person is. So the direct threats that I got from Denise and Alan Oakley, and I'll never forget their names, they were made up, they weren't on the register, they were very threatening. I made paintings of Denise and Alan Oakley and they have very ugly people in my paintings. <laughs> but, but can I say that I also considered who was that real person and why do they feel so furiously angry towards someone they don't know and that is a rift and, a, and I would go as far as to say a, a social disease in our community at the moment, that there are groups of people who feel so voiceless and disempowered and their outlet often involves a furious dance with anger and it's very scary and from my experience of Myron and Andrew's execution that does not exist in Indonesia. People were baying for blood but when you got into a conversation with them it always ended politely and with respect and that conversation with my Australian fellow Australians never ended in a polite discourse, it always ended of a race to the bottom, of assault, of of abuse, and foul language. And it's something that I think we collectively should confront.
2: Can I add, Jane, one thing, and perhaps this is a woman's thing, but I I remember dealing with very, very senior politicians, including one who was the Minister for Immigration, now our Prime Minister, was the sheer body language of dealing with a woman. Mm. And I can do it in this skirt, I wore it. Deliberately, in a way, but they, I'd get this man-spread, and this, <laughs> <laughs> and then the <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> And then there, there was usually a button missing here. <laughs> and I'd be trying to talk about the horrors of children and their mothers and their fathers in, in stinking hot detention centers. Um, and the horror of, of not having the benefit of the law. They were never charged, they never tried, and they're still there uh, in many cases years later. Uh, I was making a serious point with my business suit on and my pearl earrings, and this was the sort of treatment that I got. And I think that that, that adds to this extraordinary environment of of, um, of insult, uh, thats that it is a subterranean level. It's not always... Um, Uh, overt violence, but is subterranean in dealing with women, that they are not to be in those positions, they should not have that level of authority and power, and they should be put down, literally and metaphorically, and got out of the way. And I think that that's something we should be more alert to and call it out.
4: Mm, Me too. (laughs)
0: If anyone got that photo just now. <laughs> I haven't done that before. <laughs> it's pretty priceless. So I wonder what is the effect on each of you of speaking out? I mean, is it is it good? Is it cathartic? Or is it about drawing trouble and anxiety and worry and... Bad voices into your head.
5: For me, it's it's given a voice to the voiceless, and I think um, with with my people, the first people of this country, we've been voiceless for two hundred and thirty years. Um, now, and 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 a lot of that was probably due to not being educated in both worlds. Now we've got politicians. Now we've got you know we've got. Um, Psychologists and we've got actors and we, we we don't just have sportsmen now, you know it's like we we are smart people you know we're, we're starting we're, we're starting to catch up and and for me it's what I do, why I do it, and it's for me i I think my voice is probably a little bit louder, you know mental health and and advocating for people who struggle with mental health and 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 struggle in suicidal crisis. You know, that, that that's my passion of what I do as every day um, in helping people in many different communities. But giving voice to the voiceless, uh, I think for me is what, it just makes me hum at night. You know, it's one of those things where, um, and, and, it, and it was back in 2016 after that national anthem uh, for all, is that I was walking through Redfin Park and uh, two old women come up and and grab me crying. And they said, nephew, and in our culture, you know, auntie and nephew, thank you. Because that's a song that speaks to our past and our past isn't great. Thank you for being our voice. And that'll that'll be something that sticks with me forever because, You know, we all have individuals, we all have responsibility um, in in each and every position that we carry in our communities, whether it be a mother or whether it be a father, whether it be a politician or whether it be a mental health advocate or someone who speaks out for human rights. We all have a responsibility to do what's right. And I'm a huge believer in what we ignore is what we accept when it comes to that sort of stuff. So I won't turn my back, I won't ignore things that aren't right. If I see somebody that's being treated poorly, I'll pull it up. And if it gets me in danger, it gets me in danger, but at the end of the day, I'm doing the right thing. Um, And I'll educate people like that, with that, by my actions and by role modeling that to the day I die.
0: Ben, what about you? Are there costs? (laughs) Are there costs to speaking out?
3: Yeah, I'm still working that out in my life. I'm working out how to deal with those things. I didn't expect it, and my whole community was against me even going to art school in the first place. So I'm still working my way through the public public thing, that's for sure. But, but, I, but I'm very driven to... I always have been since I was a little boy. I wanted to understand the bully. I wanted to understand the bullied. Um, and I think that's for a long while I used to write a handwritten letter to people who spoke out publicly against me and I'm still waiting for Andrew to write back (laughs) Um, but I do I don't I don't hate them and I'm not going to ever show hate towards those people there's too much hatred in our community at the moment the left and right politics the way it's so divided you know I've been called the new face of the insane left I've been attacked by the socialist left alliance I've been attacked by the right Everyone wants to hate at the moment, and I'm not going to give in to that.
0: (laughs) Gillian, you held it together for the years that you were the president of the Human Rights Commission with, with such grace. I wonder when your finishing date was over, and I know there were attempts to make the finishing date earlier than it was, I mean, I can't imagine the scene, you know, when you finally closed the door to your house and you were free. Mm. Describe it for us. (laughs) Um,
2: Oh, I think I was exhausted, frankly. I was flat and exhausted. Um, I was, I was a, like a refugee, the very people I've been trying to speak up for, actually. I was, I was completely exhausted. There were no holidays. There was no, there's nothing like that. It was, um, it was very flat and a bit sort of grim. I didn't really know where things would go. But then all sorts of things started to come my way. Um, but also, I, 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 I'm, I'm very sorry, Ben, that you've had that hatred directed at you. Um, I mean, uh, things were, of course, very difficult for me at, at the political level. But I think one thing that our politicians, and it's weird for politicians, but they have no idea about the wider Australian community. And <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't seem, there's a huge disconnect between what's going on in those marble corridors of power in Canberra and what Australians think. And all the way through my bad time and for the last nearly two years now, the Australian public has been so supportive. Um, Even at the worst of times, people would stop me on the tram, in the supermarket, uh, in Pitt Street Mall, um, and we got so many flowers at the Human Rights Commission from from the public that they all mounted up in my office one day, and people were taking photographs, and I I said to the staff, I think I must have died last week, and nobody told (laughs) me. (laughs) But I got got hand-knitted cable scarves. I got handkerchiefs with lace around the outside. I got, uh, you, some of you in the audience will remember those old Woolworths notepads that were lined. I get little handwritten notes um, in pencil um, with just a president of the Australian Human Rights Commission on it, and a stamp on it. And I imagine it's come from a country town somewhere. I don't really know, but the, the point I'm making is I think one of the things that mattered to me throughout that five years and in the last um, twenty months or so is I deeply believe that Australians are very uncomfortable with where our government has taken us on all of these issues that we 're talking about um, and, and I think that um, they have they have become uh, inhumane and lacking in compassion, whereas the Australian people have really always had those 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 uh, qualities so that's why I feel quite optimistic about the future because I think we're turning the corner and I think you're right there is a difference in in attitude the more we know the more we're able to be compassionate and we can get away from that world of hatred that you're describing
0: Mm. we are actually supposed to finish about now, but I was hoping we could go on for another 10 minutes, if that's okay with you all. And (laughs) thank you. (laughs) And I want to end, um, and we'll try and get a few questions in as well. I I asked each of the panellists if they could talk about or bring something that had meaning for, for them and also in terms of their work. Um, And so I wonder if we can just go down the line and talk about, um, you know, an an object or something that you've brought with you specifically for our audience tonight that's special.
3: Uh, Look, I talk about compassion a lot, and and the book that I'm here with tonight called Home is a drawings by Syrian, mostly all Syrian refugee children. And I went there with Richard Flanagan in 2016, it was a life-changing experience, and the the book is dedicated to a little girl who who drew for me um, a picture. I asked her. I'd asked them to draw. I'd I'd taken paper to draw Richard's story that he was writing for the Guardian in London, and it's a pretty hard exercise to do to draw in those conditions. But what I found myself doing was taking the children away so that Richard could interview the parents, and often they'd been through unimaginable horror and sadness. And I became the babysitter, which I was happy to. I love kids. I I I enjoy their company, but I have very expensive French handmade paper. (laughs) And the, the, the first time I did it, in a Serbian transit station with about 60 children, my pad got ripped up and made into the most fucking expensive paper aeroplanes you've ever seen. <laughs> and that, that day, I saw one little girl sitting and drawing with my pencils and my paper, and she drew and drew, and I thought, that would have been me. And I walked over and sat with her. I had no translator, because Richard had the translator, as he deserved to. And I asked her to draw her home and I drew, I said home and she understood the word home and she drew a little house destroyed with a very clearly an Apache attack helicopter, three barrel bombs and two little bloody bodies beside that house. And I'll keep that drawing forever and this book is dedicated to that little girl because then I realised that every single child deserved my paper. So I funded a shitload of French handmade paper (laughs) to go to children right around the Middle East, and they all drew, and we ended up with almost 2,000 drawings by 2,000 children. Um, And I hope now in 2016, she will be fluent in German, bilingual, and living a happy future in Germany.
0: Thank you. Gillian, what's your object?
2: Jane did ask me to bring an object, and I had it all clean and folded to bring tonight, and then I rushed out of the house to the taxi and don't have it. But can I tell you about it? Because a a couple of weeks ago, I was um, giving a speech somewhere, and I was um, doing the washing up. Now, you might ask why I was doing the washing up when I'd cooked dinner. (laughs) But nonetheless... (laughs) (laughs) I was doing the washing up. And I was thinking about what I would talk about for this. I had to give an hour's hours lecture and I didn't want to bore them silly on the law. And I was, as I was pondering this, I looked at the cloth I was holding and it was um, published by Emily's List on a tea towel and it was Julia Gillard's misogyny speech. (laughs) And that speech is a wonderful speech because it was powerful, authentic, it was strong, and it explained just how badly she had been treated. Uh, and, and I think we all need to be reminded um, of, uh, of the right of women to put a view. Whether you agree with it or not, just listen to them and give them the opportunity. Um, and, but I think that a, that's a, that's a, reminds me uh, that uh, I'm not the only one these things have happened to. And, um, and we should respect those women who've tried to speak
0: up. Yeah. And what about you, Joe? What have you brought along for us?
5: Can I just say, I, I think it's, uh, it's important to say that, that I've got to wholeheartedly agree with what you were saying then as far as um, you know, giving our women a voice. My people are matriarchal people and have been respecting our women for 120,000 years. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Poor Ben. It's,
5: it, it, it's been in the last 230 that we've got extremely lost. Um, now, uh, not only can we learn about the history of our, our, our first people, let's learn about how they lived and loved each other and were at one with the land. Again, the same harsh climate that you and I live in, um, but it worked. Uh, I'm going to stand up and show everyone my boots now.
3: Um,
0: <laughs> Why are you taking your jacket off?
3: Is there can i buy the jacket
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'll get to that i'll get to that i'm going to go over here okay, because
5: for me you don't um, play in a jacket i guess i don't play in a jacket right <laughs> so for me um, music has been has been a real healer for me um, and i've been lucky enough that as a as a kid uh, i was i was taught how to taught how to play guitar and i was lucky enough to get some jeans to be able to sing not these sorts of jeans like <laughs> Voice genes, right? Um, and I always sing. sing singing is my healing. Um, if I if I travel around, travel around the country, I talk about healing to people. And if uh, if singing is my healing, because and, and the, the best thing about music is that music music is a great transporter. Is that is that you can play or listen to a cover song and you think, ah, that's where I was when I heard that song. Whether it's my one woman I should have married when I was 13, or the next six that left me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I use a lot of my speaking as well with my music and do some, do some cabaret type stuff. Um, so I, I'm not gonna go there, I'm just gonna do here, is that all right, with my sound man, yeah? Yeah, um, so I, I'm gonna do a song that's, that's extremely touching for me. It's a song by a band called Codeline. Um, I don't know if you know of Codaline. It's uh, a song called All I Want. Um, and it it, it speaks to me because when I heard that song, I was going through a a tremendously tough time, Uh, and then what I did was I made it my thing to go home and learn the song, and learn about what it was, what it was, and what it was about, and that song has always stuck with me, so I play this song to kids in schools every single day. is it.
4: goodbye I died a little bit inside I lay in bed in tears all night alone without you by my side if you loved me why'd you leave Take my body, take my body, all I want is, all I need is, to find somebody, to find somebody. movie screen Say if you love me Why'd you leave me Take my body i you leave me take my body take my body
5: Music. It's a, if you hear that song again, you'll think about me in my boots. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's the great transporter, you know, it, it it allows us to heal, you know, and the the great saying where words fail, music speaks. You know, I've I've been someone who's grown up with music in and around my house, lucky enough to, to do it now and, and teach my kids and and, and play to, play music to children every single day because music heals people.
0: Joe Williams, Gillian Triggs, Ben Quilty, and I really think that blue is amazing on you. Thank you so much for speaking up. <laughs> Thank, you.
2: Thank you, Jane. Thank, Thank you. Really lovely to uh, lovely, to, uh, you. lovely to meet Thank you.
1: Thanks a lot.
0: I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2019 Newcastle Writers Festival. Save the date for next year's festival, April 3 to 5, and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.